prone to wonder, do you feel it? Are you indeed prone to leave the God you love? What would it take for you to leave him? If the world were to seduce you away from God, what would be the shiny seductress? If you were to abandon the Lord, what would you most likely abandon him for? If you were indeed the enemy of your soul and wanted to destroy your faith, what idol would you dangle out in front of you to get you to walk off the cliff? Friends, the world, the flesh, and the devil really do exist. And they really will conspire together against you to destroy your faith that you might dishonor the Lord. That's what spiritual warfare looks like. And it's the very great threat of idolatry, destruction to you and dishonor to our creator and redeemer. This morning as we continue our study in Exodus, we come into that infamous account of the golden calf. And so I do welcome you, and if you're a visitor, I'm glad you're here, but know that we're going into an account that is incredibly painful in our study this morning. And in many ways, as we get into the study in Exodus 32 and, and cover the whole chapter and look at the idolatry that they would turn and worship a golden calf that they fashioned with their own hands, we'll look at them and many times shake our heads like, what are you thinking? But if by the Spirit's help we look accurately, we will see a mirror into our own hearts and our own lives. And we'll indeed ask ourselves the same question, what are you thinking? As we turn and look and are tempted by our own idols. Lord willing, by God's help and the power of the Spirit, he will help us flee from the folly of idolatry and to Jesus, our merciful mediator. So let's pray one more time and ask for his help even now. Father, even as the psalmist teaches us, we pray, search us, O God, and know our hearts. Try us and know our anxious thoughts. See if there be any offensive way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. The way to Jesus, we pray by your spirit and for your glory. Amen. The making of an idol. We see in those first six verses that were just read to you, the making of an idol. Now for context, I want to remind you and then for those who might be visiting and jumping into, we've been in Exodus a long time. So you're entering into a study that we are uh, deep into in our uh, time in Exodus. But I want you to remember that Moses is up on top of Mount Sinai meeting with Yahweh. And this indeed is the very arrangement Israel had asked for and requested. Remember the Lord had called out Moses and told him he had redeemed Israel to be his prized possession, his precious people. And before giving them the law, and Israel responded by pleading a, a allegiance to do all that God had commanded. Then after receiving the Ten Commandments from Yahweh, the people feared the Lord's holy presence on Mount Sinai. It was so holy and so powerful. They were afraid of God's presence and said, look, we're afraid we'll die if we're close. Moses, you go speak and hear from God for us on our behalf. Then after Moses had received and delivered what is commonly referred to as the Book of the Covenant and communicated God's will to Israel, we read in Exodus 24, verse 7, then he took the Book of the Covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and again they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. Now Moses is on top of the mountain, receiving instructions on the tabernacle, on its furniture, on the priestly garments, and all the sacrifices required for a holy God to dwell intimately with a sinful people, as we've studied in our last few sermons in Exodus in chapters 25 to 31. 
God is intricately making sure Moses understands and mediates and knows what it takes for God to be with his people. He wants to dwell intimately with them. God is making sure everything's taken care of, all the arrangements that he might dwell in the tabernacle among his people. Exodus chapter 32 happens in that 40-day window when God and Moses are having that conversation. As God is telling Moses, this is all that I'm going to do to make sure my people can be with me, his people are creating a false god to worship in his place. This leads to our first observation about making an idol. The first element of idolatry that we see is impatience. Impatience is an element of idolatry. God works too slowly according to his people. Again, Moses had been there 40 days and 40 nights according to chapter 24 verse 18. And again, they were standing in fear and trembling before Yahweh's holy presence and promised to do all that he said just five or six weeks ago. It was like it was just, it wasn't that long ago. God, we'll do everything you command us to do. Maybe they were afraid. Moses had been consumed by the presence of God. We see even there in verse 1, we don't know what happened to him. So they go to Aaron and they command him to make gods who will go before them to lead them into the promised land since Moses isn't on their timeline. Friends, do you notice it took them 40 days to abandon their faith in God? There are between one and two million men, women, and children. 40 days and not one of them says, let's wait on the Lord. Just, no, 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 do you remember his promises? Remember, what he, do y'all remember when he, when he got us out of slavery and bondage in Egypt? Remember how he sent the 10 plagues? Remember how he spoke to us, how he delivered us through the Red Sea and then he crushed uh, uh, Pharaoh's army with that very Red Sea. Remember how he gave us a plunder coming out and, he, and the gold jewelry that you're even wearing right now. Remember God's promises, let's wait on the Lord. It's only been 40. Not one person among some 1.5 million people says, let's wait on the Lord. No, instead of jewelry reminding them to trust Yahweh, they look at the jewelry and think, maybe we can come up with another plan. Easter Sunday, was 49 days ago. I would imagine some of you had a, a bit of a mountaintop experience spiritually with, with God. I wonder, in those 49 days, have you been prone to wonder, turned to idols, even in that window? Maybe we ask everyone, well, 40 days, what are you thinking? Again, Easter was only 49 days ago. What have you been thinking? Maybe you're considering abandoning him even now. What are you thinking? Have you forgotten all that he's done for you? Maybe you're experiencing a spiritual high at this moment right now. Could you really shipwreck your faith just 40 days from now? Could you really turn to an idol that quickly? In part, that might be determined by your willingness to wait on the Lord. Are you willing to wait on the Lord? I mean, surely, let's all be honest, we live in the most impatient culture in all of human history. <laughs> we don't have to wait on anything. We can stream any show, any movie, any song we want to right now. We hear world news all over the globe on our phone, on our timelines right now. Next day shipping sometimes shows up the same day. We don't have to wait on anything in this world. So again, if we would critique and look and shake our head and say, you couldn't wait 40 days again, let us look in the mirror and ask, are we willing to wait on the Lord? Be warned, impatience and idolatry are close companions. Impatience is not the only element of idolatry we see in the making of an idol. Secondly, notice a grasp for control. Israel's grasping for control. 
The person who wants power and control doesn't have time to wait for it, but they're willing to go after it and get it. Israel at this moment says it's time to stop waiting and solve this problem. If Yahweh won't send Moses back down to us to take us into the promised land, where we want to go, when we want to go, Aaron, we're coming up with another plan. Make us an idol. Aaron, we see in verse 2 and 3, gives in to their demands and tells them again to bring the materials. They make the golden calf. Now, this is not totally random. For us, culturally, this might feel random. But a, a young bull was a symbol of power in the pagan deities around and in, in culture generally. So again, they're wanting power. They're wanting control. They're wanting to be led into the promised land. They're saying, Moses is not on our timeline. We're, we're, we're done waiting with him. Aaron, make for us a God. And they make a golden calf. The desire to control time and even God himself are elements of idolatry. And again, even as I hinted just a minute ago, the golden calf was made, no doubt, out of the gold that Egypt gave to Israel when Yahweh redeemed them. He provided them with these materials to demonstrate his redeeming purposes in order to be materials to make the temple where he would dwell and worship and be worshiped among them. And they say, let's take those very materials that ought to remind us of God's faithfulness and his presence with us and let's make them into a false god. Instead of seeing gold as an evidence of God's grace and trustworthiness, they see it as something they can take control over and have power. One evidence then that you're grasping for control from God is when you use the gifts he gives for your own purposes rather than his. God gives good gifts for his glory, for you to enjoy and know of his love and for you to bless and serve others in this broken world. But when you twist those gifts for your own purposes, your own glory, you do so as an act of idolatrous worship. Grasping for control is a second element we see of idolatry. Thirdly, misattributing credit or glory is an element of idolatry. Aaron indeed fashions the idol. The people attribute to this idol God's redemptive work. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. They fashion an idol and they look at the idol and says, this is the God who's responsible for getting us out of bondage and indeed delivering us to freedom. Yahweh's the one who delivered them. And they're giving the credit to an idol that they made with their own hands. We look to idols and we say to them often, it is you, idol, who makes me who I am. It is you who gives me purpose. It is you who gives me security. You're the one who protects me. You're the one I should live for. But Yahweh is our creator and redeemer. How, may, how dare we make an idol and look to that idol to say something to it that only God himself can give to us. Misattributing credit is an element of idolatry. Anytime you look to an idol, you look to it to give you worth to give you identity, to give you purpose. You're giving it credit for being God, but it is not your God. Your idol did not make you. God made you. Friend, in your heart of hearts, even this morning, what relationship, what opportunities, what circumstances, what position, what pleasure are you looking to give you ultimate identity or purpose or security or pleasure? Your career is not your creator or redeemer. Your bank account, your spouse, your children, your home, your car, your followers on social media, none of those things made you nor died to save you. They cannot define you. They cannot give you ultimate purpose. They cannot save you from your sin and shame. They cannot satisfy all the longings of your soul. Now, for some this morning, perhaps this is hard to believe because you're enjoying the pursuit of that idol so much. You're enjoying that idol more than maybe you're enjoying God himself. That's not surprising for the fourth element we see of idolatry is settling for temporary satisfaction. 
It's no surprise when the idol satisfies for a moment. It's no surprise that the idol feels good for a moment. Because look again what, what happens. Aaron saw the idol he fashioned for Israel, built an altar to it, and made proclamation at the end of verse 5, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Now notice this, tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh, to the Lord. So they're not consciously abandoning Yahweh. They're like, no, no, Yahweh, you're just not on our timeline. You're not working the way we work. We want to get to the promised land. Moses is taking too long. We're taking control. We're getting power. We're going to make sure this happens the way we want it to happen. But listen, we're going to make this golden calf. We're going to make this idol, and we're going to worship it and call it Yahweh. We're going to still give you credit. We're just going to worship you the way we want to worship you, not the way you've told us to worship you. Notice in making of this calf, again, They don't realize they're violating and destroying the very covenant Yahweh has made with them. Remember in the first two commandments in our study through the Ten Commandments. Commandment number one, no other gods. You must worship the one true God. Allegiance, a pledge, pure allegiance to the one true God. And the commandment number two, no idols, was about right worship. So you must worship the right God in the right way. So in this act of making this golden calf, they're rejecting and breaking both of the first two commandments. No, Yahweh, look, we still want to worship you, but we're rejecting you and replacing you and calling that you. Now we have syncretism, a clear breaking of the first and second commandment. But notice, there's joyful celebration. Let's make a feast to the Lord. Let's celebrate. Verse 6, we find out they rose up to play, probably getting at sensual acts, sinful uh, pleasure acts going on even in the midst of this. So in the middle of all this idolatrous worship, they are really enjoying it. There's a temporary satisfaction to idolatry. So friend, just because you're happy and enjoying it doesn't mean you're not committing idolatry. And in fact, might mean that. That might be even evidence of your idolatry. Impatience, grasping for control, misattributing glory, settling for temporary satisfactions. All these are elements of idolatry. If you see these elements in your life, be warned. But secondly now, let's turn and look at idolatry from God's perspective. Because this is Israel's perspective as they make the idol. Now let's turn and look from Yahweh's eyes at this idolatry and see how Yahweh looks at this idol. Idolatry from God's perspective. Chapter 32, verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people and behold it is a stiff necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. So first I want you to notice a couple of things from Yahweh's perspective. Idolatry is worthy of Yahweh's just wrath. So one, an idolater is worthy. They have earned Yahweh's just wrath. It is right for him to have wrath aimed at idolaters. Why? Well, because first we see that idolatry, Yahweh, from his eyes, idolatry is relational rejection and replacement. Idolatry is you saying, God, I got no interest in you being my God. But I am a worshiper, so I'll keep worshiping, so I'm rejecting you as my God and I'm replacing you with a false God. Israel's rejecting Yahweh as their Elohim, the Lord, their God. And we see this because you notice that God says to Moses, your people. The whole time at this point, this covenant has been about Yahweh saying, no, Israel, you are my people, my chosen people. And in this moment, as they're committing idolatry, he looks at Moses and says, your people. 
They have broken their relationship with me. They're not interested in me being their God. There's a relational rejection and replacement in idolatry. By making an idol, Israel, even if unknowingly, is communicating, she does not want to be known as his people. Now, again, in their minds, they're just worshiping Yahweh in a different way. But from Yahweh's perspective, it's rejection and replacement. They made something to worship. And again, this is not how this works. (laughs) The maker deserves glory from that which is made. We understand this, right? The maker gets the greater glory, not the thing that is made. A great meal is to the praise of the cook. (laughs) A great painting is to the praise of the artist. A great song is to the praise of the musician. A great performance is to the praise of the athlete. All creatures and creation is to the praise of the creator. This is why the Apostle Paul summarizes sin in Romans chapter 1 as rejection and replacement. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Again, they misattribute Yahweh's redeeming love and grace to an idol they just made. This is unspeakably and infinitely offensive. But not only does God see it as relational rejection, in replacement, he sees it as rebellion against his own commands to their own ruin. So they're rebelling against Yahweh to their own ruin. So it's not like when you rebel and sin against God, like you get blessing. So no, no, no. You rebel and sin against God and coming to you is your own ruin. It might feel good for a minute. It might feel good for a season. But eventually, it ruins you. Three times Israel made the explicit response, we will obey all that you have commanded. Yet 40 days is too long. God is taking forever in their minds. But notice from God's perspective, what did he say to Moses? Your people have turned away from me, what? Quickly. They're like, God, you're moving too slow. God is like, you turned away so fast. Like our perspective on idolatry and God's perspective on idolatry, two very different things. Our understanding perspective on time and God's understanding perspective on time are two different things. They've dishonored God and the covenant and they've corrupted themselves. And this word corrupt is the same word that shows up in Genesis chapter 6 verse 12. The, the account of Noah and the flood. God saw the earth and behold it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Their corruption is to their own ruin. Indeed, this is in fact a return to slavery. So God sees your idolatry as a, I prefer to be a slave of an idol. Stephen says as much in his sermon just before he becomes the first martyr. Acts chapter 7 verse 39. Speaking of this very moment, our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts they turned to Egypt saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. Idolatry and sin always leads to self-corruption and death. Again, remember the tabernacle details were to remind Israel of Eden, where God would dwell with his people in paradise, that he'd be near and intimate. Remember that conversation with God is happening about the tabernacle right now. So when Nate was here and preached to us and talked to us about, about how the tabernacle was showing and demonstrating eating, anticipate Eden and anticipating the new heavens and the new earth and the new temple, the new glory, that moment is happening. But like that conversation is happening with God and Moses, but right now what are they doing? It's like another fall. 
God is intending and designing and to dwell with his people, and his people are saying, no thanks. Just like sin and death entered the world in the garden, so now sin and death entering Israel through idolatry. Rebellion against God is always to our own ruin. This is why the Lord pronounces at the end of that section there, verse 9, the Lord pronounces there are stiff-necked people. Stiff-necked. This is an imagery. So you would have an animal, a beast of some sort, that would plow fields for you. And you'd have to put a yoke around his neck to get him to do that, to pull the plow. The stiff neck is the animal refusing to let you put that yoke around him. And God says, this is what Israel is like to my commands. I tell them what it looks like for me to be their God, them to be my people, and they're all stiff-necked and avoiding and getting away from me. Maybe the illustration, since we have so many young parents here and many young grandparents, it's like when you're trying to feed a baby who keeps closing his mouth or turning his or her head to the left or right, refusing to eat. So Yahweh sees relational rejection, rebellion against his commands, replacement of him as God, and his people rejoicing at it all. They are worthy recipients of his just wrath. Friends, so too is our rebellion and idolatry a big deal. Therefore, the Lord threatens the judgment of the people in verse 10. Now, in this, he's not, God is not throwing a holy fit in this moment. He's revealing his holy character. And yet, we'll see even through Moses, this mediator, he will demonstrate his mercy that he, uh, through this mediator that he's chosen. In steps at this moment, then Moses, the mediator, in a, and beginning in a, a first a series of intercessions that we'll read even in chapters 33 and 34 in our study next week, Lord willing. That he begins to intercede on behalf of the people. So Yahweh's letting you know, my people, that, look at them. They're idolatry. They're having a good time. They think everything's good. I'm telling you they need my destruction. Moses, now this mediator, steps up to intercede for the people. Because idolaters require mediated mercy. This is what we see. Look at verse 11. Moses implored the Lord as God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent that he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from the disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. So again, idolatry from Yahweh's perspective, first is they deserve his just wrath. Secondly, they need a merciful mediator. And they get that right here. We'll find out uh, Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7 as we study next week. The God is just and merciful. He's both. So it, we read, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. So our God is merciful and just. He forgives iniquity, but will by no means clear the guilty. How? How can he be both? You got to come back next week to get more on that. <laughs> But what I want you to know is that that tension is building right here, and you ought to feel it. Wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. How can he still be just and be merciful? How can he not crush everyone and, and save anyone? Like, how can he do this? Well, he's God. And there's a uniqueness to his character, again, that we'll get into next week. But for right now, that tension, feel that tension. And notice how Moses intercedes in light of that. He does not deny or excuse Israel's sin, nor does he appeal to God based on Israel's worthiness. 
Instead, he appeals to God's sovereign reputation and character. There's three different kind of aspects he goes at here when he says, no, 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 God, please don't destroy them all. Why? Number one, God, I'm reminding you of your redeeming work of Israel. You brought them out of Egypt with a great and mighty hand in verse 11. Remember you saved them from bondage. Remember what you did to rescue and create this people. This people's created by you, oh God. So he's, he's appealing to God, you did this. Remember your mighty work. But he's also appealing to God's global glory against his enemies. Like in verse 12, he says, no, no, no. God, if you do this, well, what's Egypt going to say? Like the whole point of all this was your great glory among the nations. And if you redeemed them and rescued them with a mighty arm and did all the plagues and set them free through the Red Sea just to bring them in the wilderness to crush them, how will you get glory from even among Egypt? How will you demonstrate your power over and against the, the Egyptian people? No, no, your enemies, God. Your reputation is at stake here. So he's pleading, God, remember you created Israel. Remember you're doing this for your glory and your name and your reputation. And lastly, God, remember your covenant commitment to the patriarchs. You said to the fathers you would bless the nations through a people. Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. You've made this promise. God, you can't go back on your own promise. You're true. Let every man be a lie. God, it's true. So he said, no, no, God, I'm appealing to your sovereign power. You did this. You created them. I'm, I'm appealing to the fact that your glory among the nations is your end goal in all things. I'm appealing to the fact that you're faithful and trustworthy and you keep your word. God, please pardon their sin. This is exactly what Yahweh had called and prepared Moses to do. So again, in this moment, it's complex. And there's a number of complexities we'll get into even next week. But God in his sovereignty is saying, no, justice ought to be given, but I've called Moses to give forth mercy, even through confronting idolatry. And Moses is now interceding. If God is to forgive idolatrous sinners like Israel, like us, it will be because of his redeeming power for his global glory and because of his stunning mercy. And what we learn from this, and, and just to be good news to you this morning, sinners, there's nothing you can do to make yourself more forgivable. There's not one thing God even tells you to do to make yourself more forgivable. Your only hope is the mercy of our sovereign redeemer. And the good news is, is he has an ocean of mercy to cleanse even the most stained of sinners. We see that even here as he relents from this disaster in verse 14, or as the psalmist kind of highlights, for their sake he remembered his covenant and relented. Why? According to the abundance of his steadfast love. Why did he relent? Why did he use this language to say, I'm going to do this? Moses intercedes and therefore he does this. Well, he did it because he's full of steadfast love. And he means and even called Moses to accomplish this very thing in his intercession. However, that doesn't mean Israel's off the hook. Again, there's both justice and mercy, mercy and justice. The idolatry must be confronted. That's what we see now in verses 15 to 29, confronting idolatry. Moses goes from the mountaintop of communion with a holy God, down, down, down to the evil and foolish destruction of idolatry. I want you to think about this experience emotionally for Moses. He's in the presence of a holy God on the mountaintop, literally. <laughs> and he has to go down the mountain into this filth. Into this people whom God has redeemed and purchased with many mighty acts. And go see their idolatry. The mercy of God comes to confront idolatry. And you need to understand this. Even as Hebrews tells us, the, fa uh, the Father disciplines those whom he loves. So mercy doesn't just show up and say, don't worry, you're good. 
No, mercy shows up saying, no, no, you're bowing down to a false god. Turn away, it will kill you, and it dishonors God. So he sends forth Moses, this mediator, to deliver this confrontation about idolatry. And so we've got to confront idolatry. We've got to be honest about idolatry. We've got to see now from what Israel was seeing in their experience, Yahweh's experience, now Moses can come down and say, no, you've got to see your idolatry the way God sees it. First thing he shows them, idolatry shatters the covenant. Idolatry shatters the covenant. Look at verse 15. Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's noise of war in the camp. So picture, they're coming down the mountain. They've got the tablets, Ten Commandments recorded. Written by God's own finger, given to his people. This is the life I've called you. I've redeemed you from slavery. I've redeemed you to a new life. Here's the new life that's to instruct how you live together. And they're coming down the mountain and they hear some noise. And Joshua's like, yo, I, th- I think there's war. I think there's battle going on. Moses responds, it's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Moses comes down the mountain with the very written word of God. Joshua hears this loud commotion, assumes there's war. But Moses notices, no, no, this is not war. We talked about early in our our study in Exodus, save people sing. It's not only that save people that sing. Sending people sing too. Just go look at all the top hits right now. You'll find the idols that are celebrated the most. So he hears this singing. Singing is always the natural act of worship. It just reveals what you're worshiping. (laughs) He hears this singing and he notices and he's livid. He throws the tablets out of his hands and he broke them. He did physically what the people had done spiritually, namely break the covenant, destroying the commands. Those guilty of idolatry need to know their idolatry violates the covenant with God. Like a cheating spouse caught in the act of adultery, so too are we when guilty of idolatry. Not only does idolatry shatter the covenant, when we confront idolatry, we got to be honest, idolatry makes us dumb. (laughs) I, I, I just said it simply because we need to see it simply that we're dumb when we commit idolatry. Look at verse 20. What does Moses do? Not only does the covenant with God get shattered, what does he do with the idol? He took the calf they had made, burned it with fire, ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the people of Israel drink it. Whew. Like the covenant was not the only thing destroyed. Moses destroyed the idol to show its frailty. He exposes the weakness of their idol and the evil of the rebellion by burning the idol, grinding it to powder, scattering it on the water, and then making them drink it. Think about this. They go from sensual partying to partaking of the dust of their destroyed idol. You want to drink and party like that? Here, drink this. The very one you're now bowing down to. To show them the frailty of the idol they've just created. This is evidence you made it. I can make you drink the thing you made, and yet you're going to bow down and say, this is your God who delivered you? Not only is their covenant destroyed, but so is their fake God. And friends, we might laugh at them for drinking dust, but are not our idols as frail and weak? Your idol might not be a golden calf. But maybe you've chosen to believe and apply the nonstop sermons of modern culture and have made feelings your God. Or maybe you think that's beneath you, so you've chosen to make intellect your God. 
Or maybe it's money and possessions. Perhaps for you it's pleasure or power. Maybe it's the praise of man. Or maybe it's success. Or maybe it's a particular relationship, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a spouse, or a child. What does drinking the dust of these idols taste like? What does it feel like for your idols to make you look dumb? It looks like following your heart even though it remains fickle, self-contradicting, and empty. It looks like trusting your intellect, but then your mind starts to slip. It looks like trusting money and possession, but then it runs out because of something you can't control, maybe a recession. It looks like pursuing pleasure and cheap substitutes until you realize you're only numbing the lack of pleasure that you feel instead of actually experiencing pleasure. It looks like power ruining all your relationships and leaving you alone. Friends, if you live for their approval, how will you not die from their rejection? If you live for success, what happens when you fail? If you live for that relationship, you'll put so much weight on it that you crush the relationship and it lets you down anyway. This is what drinking the dust of idolatry tastes like for us. This is the folly of idolatry. You reject the only relationship that can save and satisfy and replace it with a substitute that can do neither. That's the folly of idolatry. You reject and replace the only relationship that can save you and satisfy you and replace it with something that can do neither one of those two things. That's the foolishness of idolatry. Idolatry makes us dumb. Speaking of looking dumb, notice what happens when Moses confronts Aaron. As for his failure as priest in this moment, verse 21. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you brought such a great sin upon them? Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, they're set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, this man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Again, we hear echoes of Eden and the fall right here. Adam, not a woman made me do it. Woman. Not nah, a snake made me do it. <laughs> Aaron, not nah, a people made me do it. So you see this again in the middle of fall. We always got an excuse. We'll always point to somebody else when we've turned to an idol and it's letting us down and God's confronting us. But notice what he says next. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me. I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. <laughs> like, I really can't believe this is in the Bible. <laughs> Like, I read it, and I asked Dustin, who knows Hebrew better than me, I'm like, yo, is this as ironic and funny and sad in Hebrew as it is in English? He's like, it's, it's even worse if you look at the original Hebrew. It's like Aaron is like, I, I don't know what happened. That mug just popped out. <laughs> I was like, threw some gold in, and there came the calf. Like, idolatry makes us look dumb. And we'll make excuses for how dumb we look. Literally, you get confronted in your idolatry and sin that's destroying you, dishonoring God, and you'll make some excuse, blame it on somebody else, and not even see how dumb you look while you're doing it. That's what sin does to us. Man, a bunch of alcohol just kept coming out of the bottle. Somehow I ended up drunk. <laughs> I don't know how it happened. It's the craziest thing. I just kept scrolling on my phone, and pornography just kept popping up. This is what we sound like when we make excuses for sin and rebellion against God. Idolatry makes us dumb. Worse than that, idolatry is deadly. Verse 25, when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, and again, this is just rampant immorality, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. Then Moses stood at the gate of the camp and said, who's on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, put your sword on side each of you and go to and fro from the gate throughout the camp and each of you kill a bro his brother and his companion and his neighbor. The sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and about that day, about 3,000 men of people fell. 
And Moses said, today you've been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. Moses observes the fruit of Aaron's leadership failure. The idolatry is out of control, has caused them to cast off all restraints. They're living in rampant immorality. They've broken loose. And this, again, is the problem of idolatry. Not only makes you look dumb, it desensitizes you to all sin and turns you loose on all kinds of sinful cravings. That's what we see even today in our culture and all around us right now. God has literally given over our land to her sin, and we literally celebrate a pride month that champions that which God abhors. And this is not, oh, God's going to judge us for that. No, this is evidence of God's judgment. Like he gives you over to your sin of choice or people over to a sin of their choice, and that's the thing that destroys them. That's evidence of judgment that it's already happened. Now, this is nothing new. Idolatry leads to all kinds of immorality. And Paul says that's the very thing we're supposed to look at this text in Exodus 32 and learn from it. In fact, he summarizes much of Israel's history and says, look, all this happened that you might learn from it and therefore flee idolatry. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That's chapter 32, verse 6 that we just read. And then he summarizes some more events in Israel's history in the future from where we're at right now. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptations overtaking you that's not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he'll provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So he says, when you look at Exodus 32, you're seeing all this. It's been written down that you might know, don't desire evil like they did, and you might flee from idolatry. We see even in this moment, this judgment, often when God judges, he does so by giving you over to your idols of choice and they destroy you. Other time he does so like he does here with 3,000 with immediate punishment. Moses draws a line in the sand and asks who's on Yahweh's side and invites all those to come. The Levites come. He commands they go execute this just judgment because of their offense and rebellion against God. We don't have tons of details, but I assume those 3,000 that were slain of about the one and a half million or two million people that were there probably were those participating in the worst kind of immorality that is running lampant that has been turned loose. And God pours out his just wrath on these 3,000, demonstrating this is one of the just punishments that comes upon idolaters. The Levites were ordained for service. But it should leave us again with that tension. What about the other million and a half or so that weren't slain? So justice and mercy, what about the rest of their sin? What about the rest of those people? How, what, like, where do we go? How can God remain just and merciful? Again, this is what God called Moses to be a mediator for, one that would plead for great forgiveness. And our last observation, idolaters need atonement. Idolaters need atonement. First, watch Moses confess their sin honestly and humbly. Verse 30. The next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. He doesn't water it down. He doesn't like this, okay, everybody does it. No, he's like, no, no, you've sinned a great sin. This is a massive problem. Now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. Notice this mediator doesn't presume on the Lord's kindness. He says, perhaps I can make atonement and confess a great sin. We all deserve 
the fate of the 3,000, but perhaps I can make atonement for sin. True confession is honest and humble. We don't make excuses for our sin. We confess it's a great sin against the grace of a great God. And we don't presume on his riches and kindness. We cast ourselves on his great mercy. But then notice how Moses identifies with God's people and pleads for their forgiveness in verse 32. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Moses has demonstrated his loyalty to Yahweh. Yahweh, you got them out. Yahweh, your glory's at stake. Yahweh, your character's at stake. Now he's saying, Yahweh, you've made me with these people, and I too am sinful. So if you blot them all out, blot me out too. This is a mediator saying, God, no, no, I've pleaded with you according to your purposes, your name, your character, your power, your glory, but I know I'm one of them. I know sacrifices have to be made for me too. So if you blot them out, blot me out. This is a mediator who's saying, no, I identify with God and God's people. I am here, I am connected and committed to these people. And this is incredible because you remember back in verse 10, what God, when he was revealing the just punishment that was deserved, said, now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them, what? In order that I might make a great nation of you. So Yahweh made a statement where Moses could have been like, bet it up, let's start over. (laughs) Like get rid of these stiff-necked people. But he doesn't. He says, no, 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 I'm with them. You've made me and called me with them. You've made me their mediator. I am with Israel. His plea is that God would forgive their sin because he knows he too is sinful. None is righteous. No, not one. And then we see Yahweh show mercy and justice. Look at verse 33. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angels shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. The Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. So again, we're going to leave a bit of a cliffhanger. There's a whole lot more to come. There's a lot more intercession. There's a lot more interactions. But Yahweh promises justice will be upheld. Sinners will be blotted out of his book. Their sin will be visited upon them. A plague will come. And yet Yahweh mercifully permits Moses to go lead the people towards the promised land. We're left with questions. How will their sin be visited upon them? What's that going to look like? Who will be blotted out? Who won't be blotted out? How will they be blotted out? What was this plague? Again, some of it we worked out in the covenant renewal in chapter 33 and 34. But the tension and questions that you feel should be felt. How can a holy God dwell with sinful man? Indeed, idolatrous people. How can his justice be upheld and his mercy distributed? Ultimately, what does it take to give mercy to stiff-necked idolaters? Moses was a faithful mediator, but clearly his life wasn't given for Israel, but instead preserved according to God's mercy. He wasn't a sufficient offering for Israel because he too was sinful. But if we just look back and think about what happened in this incident, we see a shadow of Christ. Consider, Moses went down from the mountaintop of communion with a holy God, down, down, down to the evil and foolish destruction of idolatry. Jesus left an infinitely higher mountaintop in eternal glory at the Father's right hand. And came down, down, down in his incarnation into this idolatrous world. The mercy of God flowed through Moses the mediator in order to confront the evil and folly of idolatry and lead Israel to repentance and covenant renewal and eventually longing for a new covenant. The mercy of God through Jesus Christ gives the ultimate confrontation of the evil and folly of idolatry at the cross of Christ. 
Again, we'll look more closely next week where God's justice and mercy meet. But God's justice and God's mercy are both on display, ultimately and climactically in the cross of Christ. Do you want to see the just wrath of God? Look at the cross of Christ. Do you want to see the rich mercy of God? Look at the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ where God's justice is satisfied. The cross of Christ is where God's mercy is distributed. The cross of Christ is where sinners can take their idolatry to be punished with the very death they deserve and receive the free, unending mercy of the one true God. And how do we know this? Because God's son was raised on the third day, having accomplished all of his work. So how can stiff-necked sinners like us, who resist the yoke of God's commands, fight against those enemies I opened up asking you about? Again, what would you dangle out in front of you to lead you to walk away from the living God? What idol, if you were Satan and wanted to take you out 40 days from now, what would you tempt you with and seduce you away from the living God with? And you're stiff-necked. What are you going to do? The Lord Jesus, Matthew chapter 11. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So what do we do with our idolatry and sin? We look to the mediator better than Moses. The one who died and rose again for us, the one who redeemed us and keeps us, the one who's greater than any and every idol. Prone to wonder, do you feel it? Then let you sing with the rest of us, yet not I, but through Christ in me. The one who would die for you, purchase you, redeem you, keep you, and take you unto glory with that easy yoke and that burden that is light. Let's close in prayer. Father,